Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Kind of wore myself out today. The uh, I usually go to the Y and swim, and the Y is closed. They're refurbishing it, so I went out to a lake, and that wore me out even more. So. Oh, I'm glad you made it out. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> hey, Tim, good to see you. Hi there. See you guys. Good. I've been uh, busy. I told you I took on another job for three days a week. I came out of retirement to go out and do hardcore construction again. <laughs> oh man, that sounds rough to me. Yeah, well, I did. I my, my so far my biggest day is fourteen thousand steps. You know, I have my phone; it keeps track of the steps you do. Yeah, yeah. And um, but yesterday we were ripping out. A, we're doing a house right now, tearing out all three bathrooms plus the laundry room. But fortunately, they have air conditioning in the house because it was thirty-one uh, thirty-one Celsius here today yesterday. So like ninety-five or ninety, I guess. My goodness. My goodness. Yeah, that's that's a <laughs> yes. young man's work. Yeah, I know, right? But I'm only sixty two. Yeah. Just a young pop still. <laughs> Good to see you, Janice. Hello, hello. How's everything? Good. Very good. Jim, good to see you. Hey, good evening. And Matt. Hey guys. Good Matt. to see you. Or not see you. That I, I've got that picture too, Matt. Yeah, you both look identical. Only one says Tim. Uh, if you prefer not to do the theological study, but you want to do a paper or something, uh, Tim, I know you you like uh, writing long essays, and feel free to do that. I prefer short. Okay. <laughs> oh, you say, Nietzsche said something like, I can say in, in 10 sentences what some people take entire books to say. So he's my mentor in that. I'll give you 10 sen- sentences. Yeah, yeah. Pithy <laughs> is good. Pithy. It usually takes me a lot of writing to get to pithy. A lot of erasing. Yeah, I'm I'm hard, I'm not great pithy either. <laughs> Matt, you inspired me to look up Lincoln. Is it on the the picture of John as a trial? Yes, and he is very interesting and very convincing. Actually, Bear also referred to him, and so I I I may do a little bit with him. But it you know in part it's just kind of obvious. It's clear that in John, first of all, just the literal trial is taking up more room than any other that in in the synoptics, that it's the centerpiece of of what's happening. And in the trial, and this I pointed out, and this you can either take it or leave it, and that is that, you know, Pilate comes out and he brought out Jesus, and the picture is somebody sits down in the judgment seat. And, of course, we're not sure if Pilate seats Jesus in the judgment seat. I don't know that it really matters if literally. I mean, some translations or texts have that it's literally Jesus that is sat in the seat of judgment. But maybe, you know, the the whole context, and this is kind of Bear's point, you know, he's dressed as a king, and and, uh, it would have been appropriate. The king is the judge. And so when he says, behold, your king, it, even if he's not sitting in the seat of, the ju- of judgment, that is certainly appropriate language to Jesus being judge. 
And of course, the whole picture of purple robes, the crown. And the thing that several people have brought out, and Matt, you did this, and I, may, I want to make sure and have you uh, point this out. But the picture, of course, in Isaiah of a trial scene is being repeated in John. You know, it's like the Jews are accusing God, and, and that's the picture here. But of course, in this understanding, if it's Jesus who is judge, and in the midst of this trial, the Jews, the chief priests, say, well, we have no king but Caesar. In other words, they've sort of just declared themselves guilty in terms of that Isaiah scene in which God says, well, Israel, you've continually abandoned me. And so the abandonment of God proclaimed by Isaiah, I think that's what John is bringing to focus, that he's abandoned by everyone, both the Jews and, and the Gentiles. And so obviously, you know, we did this in the lecture and in the reading that what appears to be the judgment of Jesus, and it is, I mean, in a sense, it's the world judging God, if we're reading it in the background of Isaiah, of course, that is itself a judgment of them. And it's a con, they're going to condemn God. That's the, what we're saying to death. And it turns out, of course, that this is the judgment of the world. And you can just go through John, you know, that Jesus, there's continual reference to testimony, to witnesses, to the paraclete, to judgment. The picture of this is of this cosmic trial. You know, that's there, the, the picture of a cosmic conflict. And the trial then culminates at the point that, you know, really the case is closed, that uh, it's been shown that, oh, everybody's hostile to God in terms of, again, thinking of the Isaiah background, and they've abandoned God. And so they hand him over to be crucified. And so this is, this is Bear's point on 913. It is Jesus himself identified by the title of king who is the judge. And then he connects it, raised up, but upon the cross between two others. He pictures that as Jesus positioned on the throne in the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat. He's picturing the two thieves uh, or the two on each side of him like the cherubim. Uh, that's what I did in part in the blog. I, I traced, you know, that, of course, what's happening throughout John is that from the cleansing of the temple, which is probably the wrong name for that, it's a, a kind of temple replacement. And that when he's identifying, you know, he does this throughout with the feasts. What is there? There's some seven feasts, but the feasts surrounding the temple in which there is water coming, you know, that's the picture in Ezekiel, the water coming from underneath the temple. In chapter seven, Jesus says that, you know, it's very much like chapter four, but in seven, he also says that I will give you the water of life. And of course, in each instance, he's, he's doing the same thing that he did in chapter two, when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. He's identifying himself with the temple. Here is true temple. Here, uh, you know, on the Feast of Lights that he's there, he says, I am the light of the world. On the Feast of uh, Dedication or Consecration, you know, that's celebrating the re-consecration of the temple, Jesus says, I am the consecrated one. 
And so there's this clear identification with the temple. And then I think that, of course, that imagery is there throughout, that even when we get, that's what Bear is doing with the two on the cross, picturing it like one between the cherubim. And what I did was to go to John 20, when Mary goes out to the tomb early in the morning and sees the two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet. What does that sound like? And a lot of people have pointed this out. Mercy seat. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the mercy seat. I referenced a guy named Nicholas Lund. He actually goes through in great detail and finds similarity after similarity that the, the, the tomb is being identified with the Ark. And so just as the Ark of the Covenant was separated from the holy place with a veil, the tomb is sealed with a rock. You know, the verbs there that they carried and laid his body in, he points out that John uses the language, it's echoing the very language that's used in Exodus of, of the, the verbs surrounding, you know, that they put the Ark of the Covenant in there. That the cloth, the burial cloth that is wrapped around Jesus, and they put myrrh in it. He points out, well, the Ark of the Covenant was wrapped, or, you know, and myrrh was also placed in that cloth. And of course, they're both in a garden, or the Ark was decorated with the guard scenes from the Garden of Eden. And the clearly the garden, the tomb is in a garden. I don't know if we want to connect also Gethsemane, of course, before that. You know, the difference, of course, is, and maybe this is the significance, the detail that Peter and John just walk on in. The picture in the Old Testament is that, you know, you couldn't go in, and if you go in, don't touch the stuff, or you're going to get, or you're going to die, and don't even look at the stuff wrong. And so it's a very fearful thing. And maybe that's echoed, maybe, I don't know if this is contradictory, but Jesus says to Mary, don't touch me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, a kind of prohibition. But then, of course, he later he says, touch me, put your hand in the, the hole in my side, and look and see that there's no fear of being struck dead. And, and then both the Mary coming to the tomb early in the morning, the high priest would go into the Ark of the Covenant early in the morning, and the glory. Uh, that's the, the key thing, is the Ark of the Covenant was connected with the glory of God, and th the picture is that uh, this is a surpassing glory, especially the cherubic figures are described, you know, Hebrews 9, 5 calls them the cherubim of glory, and it was here that God would speak, you know, God would speak to Moses from between the cherubim at the mercy seat, uh, it says in Exodus 25, I will speak to you all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And then, of course, with the loss of the ark, God falls silent. There's a loss of glory. But here the presence of God, I think, is being identified. John seems to by, be identifying it. Here is the one who dwells between the cherubim. But now the presence of the risen Lord is marked by these living angelic messengers. So the tomb is the ark, or in Bear's language, the cross is the ark. 
there just seems to be these purposeful echoes throughout. And maybe that's connected then too with the idea that th this, this kind of echoing of Isaiah of a cosmic trial. I was asking myself a question, and I hope you all can help me answer it. And that is that what John seems to be doing with the law, with the Old Testament, with the Jewishness, what correlate would you see between Paul and John in regard to the law? Paul and John, it's not a problem with the law per se. I think that's a misunderstanding. And sometimes people, I'm, if I don't say this carefully, I'm afraid people are mishearing what I'm saying. The problem is with the orientation to the law. There's no, no problem being Jewish. There's no problem with the law. But the problem is with the human orientation to the law. And we're seeing that, I think, in John, the same thing. That is that people would take the law as a absolute. Or in, you know, if you're thinking in terms of Charles Taylor, they're looking at everything in an imminent frame. I think that's Paul's problem. The, or, or his description of the problem. The law is wholly just and good, but the law is not an end in and of itself. And I think we, what we see, you know, that they're going to destroy the author of the law for the letter of the law. So that here is the enactment of Paul's depiction, the letter kills. <laughs> I thought I just thought of that, but... Maybe I thought of it and forgot it and thought of it again. You're confusing yourself with the Apostle Paul, I think. Didn't he say that? Well, I, I mean, yeah, that part he did. But I'm sure you said something about this was obvious in Paul as well as in John. That is the major theme is, is orientation to law. And, of course, in, in identifying John and Paul, I think we're identifying also the human, the human predicament. That is that John and Paul's depiction of the human predicament. John is picturing this as a cosmic order. It's a cosmic order of darkness, but it also, I think it could be identified Roman law, but also the sense, in other words, in which the Jews, they can't hear, they can't see, because in a sense, they're attached to the temple for their zeal. I'm reading that verse, their zeal for the temple is what kills Christ. They're attached to the letter. But this is the lie, and I think it is a, a universal lie, that, and John is going to picture it as devil-inspired, you know, that you're of your father, the devil, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And Paul implicitly, well, not he, explicitly and implicitly connects it to the, the lie of Satan. That's part of the picture of when we're talking about a trial, that it's also then this cosmic conflict, even though the, it's not a major theme in John, I think the picture of the, the, the judgment that falls upon Satan, that when I am lifted up, the prince of this world will be cast out. And so we might say this, that the characteristic truth, that's one of the things that are being argued that we have two frames for truth that are being posed by Pilate or, or by the Jews, and that Jesus is challenging at this frame of truth. And the way that Jesus pictures this frame of truth, he talks about it being flesh-bound 
earthbound, he says in uh, 724, appearance bound. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And I think when we're talking about judgment, we're talking about witnesses. What we're really talking about is the establishment of what is truth and how is it determined. He says, you judge in 815 according to the flesh, but my judgment is valid for it is not I alone that judges, but I and the Father who sent me, 815 to 16. And so Jesus depicts his own perspective as from above as uh, one that is descending and descending. And of course, if we're still thinking of Isaiah, that here is the, the perspective in Isaiah, perspective from above, and Jesus is the witness of this transcendent perspective. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen or heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. So again, the language of a trial, and here is testimony in a trial. And I think I'm quoting Lincoln here. I picked up an article by him. In his testimony, Jesus represents then the divine judge. That's in 5 to 939. The picture is, okay, we're interrogating the witnesses and we're coming to a judgment. Lincoln is pointing out, Bear points this out. The background here is from the, the language of Isaiah. And part of this, then, it, it ties into the I am statements. Part of the thing that God is proving in Isaiah that is taken up as Jesus is testifying, he says, believe and know that I am. That's precisely what God says. And the difference, of course, is that Jesus is now referring to himself as the witness. It's a, a self-reference. You know, this is the, the section, the ego a me, where they pass judgment on him and stone him because he claims to be before Abraham was I am. And so they're going to stone him for blasphemy. And similarly, in 18.5, Maybe, and this is a straightforward identification with, again, their betrayal of Yahweh, their betrayal of God. When they come out to arrest him and Judas gives him the kiss and he says, ego a me, and they fall down. This pronouncement is like a theophany that when he says this, there, there's a kind of recognition in who he is. He says in 13, 18, I tell you this now before it occurs so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. And so part of the proof of the testimony is, and of course this is true in Isaiah, is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And then the, the picture of the, the role that death, they, they condemn him to death and Jesus is shown. I think that if we had to tie things together, if we had to line up a column, we could link truth, life, transcendent perspective, death, a lie, and of course, a kind of false power with that. So throughout, Jesus is the source of life. He's the source of water. And, and I think that's the representation. We talked, we did that. I think the picture of the blood in the temple, it's not that God likes death. It's that the blood is representative of life. And of course, we have the blood of the high priest applied to the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant the death of Christ applied in the tomb, 
I think the very category of Sheol or Hades is undone. The, the tomb as the ark means that the place of the dead has become the holy of holies. The place that the Jews would have considered unclean, the one place that they would have thought that God, that there is no access to God, has become the very means of access. That is that Sheol, Hades, the place of the dead, was kind of the unbridgeable gap between heaven and earth. God in Christ has closed the gap, uh, that now there is access to God, there is access to heaven, that the tomb is the place from which God emerges. You know, if you think of the Holy of Holies, we often picture that in the wrong way. It's not so much that the priest is going in. The key part of it was when he comes out, and he comes out as Yahweh. He is Yahweh's representative. God has come to his people, is, is the picture. The thing that Lincoln does, Bear does a little bit of it, just that again and again, Jesus says uh, in 939, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And then right after this in 1010, he says, I have come that they might have life and have it in abundance. I think we get the wrong idea with judgment. God's judgment, God's making things right, is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. I mean, this is actually what Israel calls out for uh, again and again. You know, or what is it in Malachi? They say, "Oh, we're like a we're like fish on hooks. We're like uh, meat." And God, where are you? The uh, you do not rescue us. Where is your righteousness? That's Paul's opening quote in Romans. The righteousness of God has been revealed. I think we could almost do the same thing with the idea of judgment. Here is the judgment of God, but this is a saving judgment, right? This is a salvific establishment of righteousness. So I have come that they might have life and have it in abundance, that there's a, a, in judging, Jesus is doing the will of him who sent him. A little bit of this in John, he, that it kind of bounces back and forth as to who the judge is. It can be attributed either to Jesus or God or both, but Jesus can say that the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son in 522. But then he says that God is the ultimate judge in 850, and he says, I judge no one. But then he says, even if I do judge, I'm not alone, but it is I and the Father who sent me in 816. And then he says, well, it's not for judgment that I've come, but the word that I give is judgment. That is, what you do with the word of Christ is a kind of judgment. And so God's judgment, you know, we're in the synoptics, it's God's rule or kingdom that it's uh, established. In John, God's salvific judgment through Jesus inaugurates life or eternal life. Uh, and so God's righteous judgment God and God's salvation are tied together in Israel's, the picture there, and in their, their experience of injustice. And so for God to establish justice was for God to right wrong, to restore life, to set the world straight. And that's the picture of, in a sense, God's judgment begins with Christ. And that's the picture, I think, that in K 
connecting judgment with Jesus, that's what's unfolding here. And so Jesus says to Pilate in 1837, for this I was born, for this I came into the world, to witness to the truth, to give testimony to the truth. He says, I came into this world for judgment in 939, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And so not only his words, but his deeds contribute to this, the miracles. He says, if you don't believe the words, we'll believe the works, uh, because their testimony as to who he is. And through their bringing life and well-being, they then are part of this, this judgment. This is true in Isaiah. The, let me end with this, that, you know, there's all the negative stuff in Isaiah, but in 41, the end of it, it, it says, uh, it ends with, Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God, for you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. That is, that salvation is extended to Israel and to the nations, to the ends of the earth, if they turn to Yahweh. And so I think that's the, that the significance of seeing it as a kind of trial. It's not a negative judgment, but here is the judgment of the world upon Christ is death, but Christ puts life then in place of death. I think this is the line that sometimes we, we see people uh, trying to straddle between some vision of Christ as vengeful and he-man like strong in the book of revelation he comes back with a with a sword and a tattoo on his leg and he's got the blood dripping off his robe and you know there's this interpolation of that uh into jesus as a yeah he's a he's a lamb but he's also a lion and you know he's when he comes again he's going to be a lion but I really appreciate this, all that you're saying and recognizing that his justice and his mercy aren't in tension with each other. The, the one event of his coming uh, sort of forces the issue. It's all mercy. And his justice is the, the, the messaging or the warnings that come in very, uh, you know, physical environmental forms with the locusts and earthquakes and all the things in Revelation, uh, that seems to be, a, I'm, I'm pointing to Revelation because it seems to be where some of this uh, is just most visible. But yeah. as you said, the message of John uh, is just the repetition of revelation of, of who Christ is and whether the people would recognize it or not. Uh, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and each story is on through the the final sort of proof, so to speak, in, in the crucifixion and resurrection that this is, this is Christ, this is Jesus. You either, rec- you know, you either recognize him or you don't, and you, you either stumble over him or you su- submit to him and, and, and draw life from him and see them as the giver of life. All that you're saying, something that is a theme that's, I don't quite have my handle on real good, but I, I'm, I'm starting to see how unified the vision is and the message is and it's positive and it's all uh, merciful his actions and the blood on his robe is not other people's blood 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Who was the who is the preacher that says, "Yeah, I would never want to worship a god that I uh, I could beat up." That's Mark Driscoll. Driscoll. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he wants the warrior god in Revelation. That's kind of the Revelation, the picture of. Also, you go into the throne room, and of course, in the throne room with the Jews, they're thinking of everything as being centered in the Holy of Holies. That here is the waters, the springs of life coming out of the Garden of Eden. Here is the capstone holding down the flood waters of Noah. Uh, here is the place that Jacob's ladder, you know, the ascent and descent. Here is the place that Abraham offered Isaac. Here is the, the center of the world. In Revelation, then, the lamb who looks, the lamb who has been slain is at the center of the world. If there's a sword, it's the sword of his tongue. It's his word. It's not a, a literal sword. Uh, first of all, I don't think the early church had any trouble distinguishing that because they were just thoroughly nonviolent. I think it's only with the, the Constantinian Christianity, the rise of a, a violent Christianity, that people missed the metaphor. And, and we've talked about, I think we did enough with the temple cleansing, that it's just sort of ridiculous to attach. I mean, literally, people get just war, and one of the, the key things is going to be the cleansing of the temple. There's no bazookas or machine guns or hand grenades. None of that's involved. It was probably a little whip of cords. I think, Jim, you're the one that said, you know, in driving animals, uh, you really don't even need to hit the animal. You just make a noise. The idea, that's the way my dog, you know, you just rattle some paper. And boy, that's frightening, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that the once we, that there's a kind of violence that enters in, I think we're going to miss the, the significance of the death of Christ. If God is going to condemn somebody, if there's someone that is damnable, is Judas beyond being saved? I, I don't want to be dogmatic, because I know this may be offensive to people, but I, I actually think that the way that we answer this question pertains to how we see what's happening in Christ. My first thought is, I don't know. That's my first thought. <laughs> when Judas was given a morsel, Satan entered. Does that mean he's... Is Satan's like in the driver's seat, and then Judas is just a uh, puppet on a string, or does he still have some control over his decisions? And and when Jesus says, what you're going to do, do quickly, is he talking to Judas, or he's talking to Satan? I have no answer, but... Okay. If, if we had to identify the sin of Judas, obviously it's a betrayal of Christ. Is he the singular one in that betrayal? And we might say, well, his betrayal is worse than the others. Matt, I, I sure want you to read yours. seems to be a particular instance of what Israel's been doing throughout the Old Testament of, of turning from God. The majority position in the Christian tradition certainly seems to answer this question as a resounding, yes, Judas is beyond redemption. Even Karl Barth, who sees God's election of Jesus as salvation on a universal scale, would demur on Judas's ultimate fate. In thinking through the application of Judas to Judas, of Bart's doctrine of election, Bart understands Jesus and Judas to be an unresolvable contrast of one another. 
Jesus is for Judas, but Judas is against Jesus. Quoting Bart, on the one side, Jesus is for Judas too, indeed for Judas especially. Now on the other side, Judas against Jesus, against the very Jesus who is, in, is for him, who gives him wholly and utterly for himself, who washes his feet, who offers him his broken body and shed blood, who makes himself his. For Barth, the New Testament offers no resolution to the contrasting light of Jesus and darkness of Judas. Quoting Barth, on, on the one hand, the New Testament places no limits on the grace of Jesus Christ, even with regard to Jesus. It sets Judas against the brightest radiance of his grace. And on the other, it does not use even a single word to suggest that Judas is an example of apocatastasis. Bart is left with no resolution to the contrast of Judas and Jesus. Though it seems to me that both the New Testament and Bart's doctrine of election draw, drawn therefrom do, in fact, resolve this contrast. Indeed, Jesus' being for Judas and Jesus' being against Jesus is merely one particular instance of God's relation to humankind and humankind's relation to God is played out across scripture. God is for Adam while Adam is against God. God is for Israel while Israel is against God. Jesus is for the, for the world while Caiaphas, Pilate, the crowds, the quote-unquote Jews, and even his own disciples are against Jesus. But Jesus and Judas, and God and Adam or Israel for that matter, are not equal agents of operating on the same horizon. As John tells us, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overtake it. Bart is correct that the New Testament does not hold out Judas as an example of apocatastasis in particular. He is even more correct, however, in his observation that the New Testament places no limits on the grace of Jesus Christ, a claim that ultimately overcomes and hollows Bart's own hesitancy to proclaim the grace, that grace reaches even Judas as it has humankind. St. Melito of Sardis has seen this con also sees the contrast between Israel and Jesus, of which the contrast between Jesus and Judas is a particular instance. At the end of Melito's Eastern sermon, Peri Pashka, in the voice of Christ, Melito asked Christ, as Christ asked Israel, who has betrayed him, who takes issue with me? Let him stand before me. Who will contradict me? Melito, as Christ, answers his own question. It is I, says the Christ. I am he who destroys death and triumphs over the enemy and crushes Haiti and binds the strong man and bears humanity off to heavenly heights. It is I, says the Christ. So come all families of people adulterated with sin and receive forgiveness of sins. For I am your freedom. I am the Passover of salvation. I'm the lamb slaughtered for you. I'm your ransom. I'm your life. I'm your light. I'm your salvation. I'm your resurrection, I'm your king. I shall raise you up by my right hand and I will lead you to the heights of heaven. There shall I show you the everlasting father. As Melito has it, no one is left to, to contradict Christ, not Israel, nor death, nor Hades, nor it seems to me even Judas. Je death has been defeated and humanity has been lifted off to heavenly heights. Surely Judas is part of this humanity, even if, if the particulars of Jesus is returning to this humanity lifted up are a mystery to us. After all, can Judas be confronted by the risen Jesus, as was Paul on the road to Damascus, and not be struck blind? Can Judas be confronted by the risen Jesus, as John was when he was in the spirit on the Lord's day in the island of Patmos, and not fall down at Jesus' feet as though dead? How could Jesus not, as he did for John on Patmos, put his right hand on this man who found out, fell down dead at his feet and tell him, 
Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see, I'm alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I just thought your answer there was, was wonderful. But of course, I think there's a lot of implications in this answer. What is the nature of salvation, I think, is the, is the question. If Judas is saved, or, or maybe we don't even need to talk that way, is, is salvation universal? You know, it may be leaving some ambiguity in it. I think clearly salvation is universal. That's taught. Then the question is, well, what do we mean by universal? And it seems like in John that Judas is playing this role. Clearly, Satan enters into him, uh, but there is also the picture. At least I think that's what's happening at the washing of the disciples' feet. You're clean, but you're not all clean the dirt that they share, the sin that they share, is a direct reference to Judas, right? And mm-hmm. the sin that is being conquered is a direct reference to the sin of Judas. But I'm, I'm happy to hear a counter proposal. Maybe that's too offensive. Paul, back to your original question, can Judas be saved? I've betrayed Jesus hundreds of times. Can I be saved? I mean, you know, and, and, and what about Paul? Can he, Paul, not you, Paul, of course we know you're not. But what about Paul the Apostle? He murdered Christians. Can he be saved? What if he meets one of those, one of those people he murdered up in, on the other side? Would they want him there? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's or, and, and then this play the devil's advocate, of course, you quoting Bart there in the election, of course, the only issue is whether Judas was elect or not. So maybe he wasn't elected to salvation. He was elected to perdition, like most of humanity. <laughs> well, I, I don't think, in other words, Bart is thought to be a universalist, usually. Am I wrong, Matt? He's, yes, he is thought to be. He never comes out and says he's a universalist. In fact, he denies that he takes a position one way or the other. But the implication of his doctrine of election is that it is universal. That is that that the election that is God's election for Jesus before before time, and thus, and thus Jesus uh, Jesus election for all of mankind. And Tim, your point I think is well taken. You know, if if we of course the apostles elect Matthias, and we never hear anything about him, so the person that's going to stand in for Judas is Paul, and Paul is a persecutor of the church and by his own description, the chief of sinners. In other words, if there's a contest, Paul says, I win the contest. Who more appropriate then to stand in place of Judas? That here is one who too has betrayed and fought against and even killed in the name of his religion. Paul, can I bring in, uh, well, first of all, I want to just say that with Tim, uh, I, I, I identify with with how Tim was thinking about this, that Judas is a type, I think, of uh, any of us, anytime whenever we turn to, to sin and, and things like that and, and despair, you know, we become like Judas, right? But I wanted to bring in um, George McDonald, and I don't know if you guys are, uh, I know, Paul, that we've, you know, you're familiar, but I don't know if the rest of the group is familiar with George McDonald, uh, his unspoken sermons, I would say, belongs on everybody every you know thinking christian shelf it's just one of the best books i've ever read 
he's a profound, beautiful thinker. He wrote a lot of fiction, but but my favorite stuff that he did is from the Unspoken Sermons. And uh, he does a thing on Judas. And I have a quote here, if you don't mind me reading it. I think it's the beautiful way to think about it. Um, he's quoting, uh, he's commenting on Luke twelve ten, which is, whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven. Uh, George McDonald says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, said the divine, making excuses for his murderers, not after it was all over, but in the very moment when he was dying by their hands. When the father succeeded in answering his prayer, then his forgiveness in the hearts of the murderers broke out in sorrow, repentance, and faith. Here was the sin dreadful enough, surely, but easy for our Lord to forgive. But we must believe that Judas, who repented even unto agony, who repented so that his high-prized life, self, and soul became worthless in his eyes and met with no mercy at his own hand, could not find any mercy with God? I think then Judas fled. I think when Judas fled from his hanged and fallen body, he fled to the tender help of Jesus and found it. I say not how. I believe Jesus loved Judas even when he was kissing him with a traitor's kiss, and I believe that he was his, his savior still. I cannot believe, oh my Lord, that thou wouldst not forgive thine enemy even when he repented, nor will I believe that thy holy death was powerless to save thy foe, that it could not reach to Judas. Have we not heard of those thine own taught of thee who can easily forgive their betrayers in thy name? And if thou forgive, will not thy forgiveness find its way at least in redemption and purification? So I just love that high view that McDonald has of God's infinite love. You know, it's like we, a lot of times, like, I think, you know, I, I at least have a, a habit of uh, qualifying God's love in some way, you know, and, and making it conditional. But McDonald, I think he just has, of all the Protestants I think I've ever read, he, he's my favorite. I think he's maybe the greatest of all time. And, and, you know, he's not a theologian like Bart, but just as a, the beauty of his thought. But, you know, he doesn't place any limitations on, on God's love, on God's goodness, on God's mercy, on his grace and his love for all mankind. Uh, he understands that God's love is is infinite. It's not limited, uh, and it's now for him. It's it's uh you know it's it's until you, we pay we pay the last penny, right? Like we have to be purified. You know, we have to. God will only have us as sons. He says, you know. So it's like we he doesn't venture to say how that might work, but that um yeah he believes that all will be safe as through the as through fire through through purification because god's fire is his goodness it is his love it is his you know it's a redeeming remedial fire this is who god is in other words we're talking about who who is this god that we're talking about you know what's he what's he like and for george mcdonald he he's infinite love i think this is highly offensive right <laughs> Well, I said you've offended Paul. He just said this is highly offensive. Like you think it's it's highly offensive to like our sort of natural um, inclinations. Yes, uh, yes. I think for most Christians, this is probably highly offensive. We almost need a Judas. We almost need someone beyond salvation, and then we can sort it out from there. We, we need well then let's talk about Yankee fans. <laughs> <laughs> but of course a lot of my favorite, you know, a lot of my favorite people who have the universal hopes to say things like everyone's gonna be saved except for possibly me. In other words, there's a humility that's you know what I mean, there's a recognition of that that we are Jew that so we identify with Paul when he says I'm the chief of sinners. 
Right. That, right. you know, I always think, you know, because we say that in the prayer, every um, liturgy before the communion, um, this, you know, it's, it, it's a prayer that we say that Christ came to earth to save uh, sinners of whom I am the first. And I always think that, you know, whenever Paul says that he's the chief of sinners, I'm like, man, that's because I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't come into existence yet. You know, there's no way that Paul was a, a greater sinner than I am. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I think that the point is for us is to read that uh, Paul, you always help me to see this. Is that like the point when we're reading the scriptures is to not put ourselves in the place of the righteous, but of the right of, of, of sort of in the place of the wicked. And I think that's the danger with Judas. As long as we demonize Judas, we're counting ourselves out. Yeah. And we're not doing, I think, what Jesus called upon the disciples to do when he said that you're not all clean. You need to be washed. And the precise thing that you need washing of, whatever that sin of Judas is, it's one that would in some way, you know, Jim, you gave us the uh, interpretation that some people have. Oh, maybe Judas is like a zealot and he wants to get this war started. And so he betrays Jesus with the idea that Jesus then will stop this whole meek and mild stuff and get the revolution on. Maybe. Or maybe he was just a thief, as you know, that, that's the way they describe him that he was a thief. He was stingy, like money. But he, you know, he the money apparently uh, didn't satisfy him. He threw the money into the temple. Whatever the sin is, in some way, I think the sin of Judas and the sin of the all of the apostles pertains to the the nature. In other words, it's the night when Jesus humbles himself. The idea, of course, in the foot washing is that you would give your life for others. That's the sin. Judas would give Jesus life. <laughs> for himself, he would betray him. Uh, Peter would give his life if it meant he could whack off some ears and heads, but not exactly. In other words, the sin of Peter and the sin of Jesus, because Jesus also says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I, I have a feeling that the sin of the two is in tandem, that there it is a kind of death resistance. It's an unwillingness then to go to the cross, you know, to take up the cross. And of course, I think that's the significance that there is allusions then to this laying down your life. You know, that's the interesting thing that right before that is that Mary who uh, washes, you know, his feet, and, and it's clearly a preparation for burial. And I think the whole house, you know, takes on this kind of odor of, of a burial. Mary understood it. Well, it's also interesting that that uh, it's that event where in earlier in other gospels, at least in, in Mark, I believe the disciples are, it doesn't specify Judas, but it says the disciples are upset about the, the vial being broken and poured out when it could have been given to the poor because it was so expensive. And then in Matthew, it specifies that Judas was particularly miffed about this. And that's when it entered his heart, possibly, I think, uh, to betray. And I just never had brought the correlation between the, the foot washing in John 13 and the alabaster vial being broken and washed Jesus's feet, which was sort of, 
I think where the the rift started happening, it leads to some other thoughts I've had. I mean, I went, I, I wrote some of this about 13, 15 years ago or more, but that maybe there was some sense in which the, the early Christians actually scapegoated Judas a bit, you know, by developing, by the time John was written, it was Satan entered this man. And this happened as a, as a result of something supernatural in Mark, it was much more just a, a common misunderstanding about the mission of, of the gospel uh, of, of the kingdom. I, I had read an article back then about the, it was called the metamorphosis of Judas Iscariot. And, talk, and of course, we don't, we don't really do much of parallel of the gospels in this course and comparing they're all different, right? But you base it on which one was written first, Mark, and then Matthew, Luke, and then John you can see a trace of development of the interpretation of Judas, the motives of Judas. Hmm. There's a sense in which, and my, my thought at the time was, we should have a little bit of compassion on the early Christians because, you know, they were all victimized or put out by 30 pieces of silver. And Judas is the one who did that. But it was like it took a little time for them to sort of be able to put worse. And, and it's just unfortunate is he beyond being saved? I think it would be easier to answer that if he hadn't hung himself. So I don't know. I'm all over the place, but I, I appreciate the question and the, what it opens up for us uh, and, and to the solidarity. I wrote about it in, in my response. The fact that Jesus is washing their feet. You mentioned it in class uh, to, to cleanse them of the very sin that they were in some ways separate from, but also in some ways complicit in. Uh, uh, the betrayal and the scattering. There's the handing over, you know? Yeah, I really liked your response on that one. That Who handed him over? Who handed over Jesus? Everybody. Yeah, I think so. Even Everybody his own mom. I mean, at the end of the day, none of them said, kill me too. I mean, I don't know yeah. how they would say that. or, But he was utterly alone. That's the point. And um, that's Paul the sin of Judas, yeah. Yeah. Go was ahead. it in this class or was it somewhere else I heard where where the question is asked or Jesus makes the statement, one of you is going to betray me, and all of them are going, was it me? Could it be me? Like they didn't know themselves well enough that any one of them could have, you know what I'm saying? Just that sense of no one sitting there going, oh, it certainly couldn't be me because I'm just too good for that sort of thing. So even that is kind of interesting. There's that, that solidarity amongst the disciples that, man, we're all nasty beasts or whatever you reprobates. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you were Go talking ahead. about in the in the in the earlier class. I can't remember if it was the first class, but you were talking about how the key, or maybe this was in your blog. But you were talking about you know the key to John's atonement theology is found in John the Baptist when he says, "Behold, the Lamb that takes away the sin of the cosmos." Or of the cosmos is the word, right? Mm -hmm. And the fam most famous book, you know, or the most famous verse, you know. Uh, for God so loved the cosmos, you know, that he sent his only son, you know, and so like this, you, this universal sort of language, you know, this strong, that's like, that's an offensive, and it was certainly offensive to the Pharisees, right, and, and the sort of the, how could you be inclusive of everybody that's not us, you know, and so I'm wondering, though, if, if, because I, what I've always got from what you're doing is that, that what John's laying out is that Christ has, through his um, life and death and resurrection, has truly abolished death and sin and he's taken into what you know behold here's the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the cosmos 
right? I guess my uh, my question to you is, is like, well, wouldn't that include if he takes away the sins of the cosmos? Wouldn't that include everything? You know, see, in other words, it's a it's a the, the atonement doesn't like in some way because I think that that's kind of the Calvinist move, right? They say, well, the reason why people go to hell forever is because their sin hasn't been atoned for, right? They they Jesus didn't die; he died for the sins of the elect. He died for the sins, right? He, he only, it was a limited atonement. That's the reason why people go to have their sins aren't atoned for. But I feel like the atonement that you're laying out theory is that no, actually Christ's atonement was adequate. You know, it was more than that sort of adequate as it falls short, but that uh, he takes away the sins of the cosmos. To me, that that's key. That's key to understanding because why then do we limit the mercy of God? Like, right? Like, isn't that what John is telling us about God is that, his his mercy endures forever that his his love is infinite that he's he really has abolished sin and death and so i guess i'm not sure what what's left to sort of annihilate or or to be held against even judas or whatever this is an open question that i don't pretend to have the answer to and I, i think that if we say no to this or we say that is judas beyond being saved or we say yeah he's beyond being saved you know that judas those Jews are just like him. It's the Jews that are the Judases of the world. That's what happened historically. And unfortunately, you know, some would say, point to John and say, that's the way that he's using the Jews. I don't think John is anti-Semitic. Uh, I think that's a ridiculous statement. But historically, if we demonize Pilate, Judas, Herod, if we're able to demonize anyone, and of course this takes us to Rene Girard, we're committing the sin that Jesus saves us from, and that is the sin of scapegoating. It's that dirty Judas and his friends. In the story, of course, John says everybody, he just goes through, you know, Judas starts the chain reaction. He handed him over but then everybody that comes into contact with Jesus hands him over so that they're all participants in the sin of Judas. Mm. You know, Pilate hands him over to the Jews. The Jews hand him over to the Romans. The, then that word, I'm not claiming I understand that completely, but there is a kind of fate or there is a kind of uh, a notion that this law of the universe is unbreakable. And so you just acquiesce. You just hand him over. You cannot resist. I think that's what it feels like to stand with the scapegoat. In other words, the world is against him. That's literally what John is portraying. The whole world is set against him. And how could you stand with him when the whole world is against him? In in a sense, it is an impossibility unless we're enabled to stand with him. I think that's the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we're enabled then that the darkness doesn't overtake the light. But boy, we can sure feel the power of the darkness. In other words, I'm afraid that if we just, if we miss, Matt, as you're saying, the cosmic proportions of this thing, this is a, this is a law, this is a cosmos, this is a religion, that is constituting the thing that kills Jesus. All of that is involved in this trial. They all are witnesses against the accused, and no one comes to give testimony on behalf of Jesus other than Jesus. But of course, that's enough. 
<laughs> you know, when I am gives testimony, you really don't need other testimony. But the point I think that John is making that he just lines everybody up and said, well, the world was against him. The cosmos was against him. And so if we fail to, if we just pick out, we say, well, you know, it wasn't everybody. It was, it was mainly that Judas guy. The danger is we'll miss the nature of salvation as John, and, and I think, don't think it's just John, but certainly it's John is presenting that, you know, who's on trial here. And sometimes this has been read as a trial of humankind. But Matt, I, I sure want you to read yours because yours is just excellent on this. The trial of Jesus can be read as the fulfillment of God's cosmic trial depicted in Isaiah 43. There God puts himself on trial, calls witnesses for his case, but judgment is actually rendered against Israel. Quoting God from Isaiah, let all the nations gather together and let the peoples assemble. 43.9. God goes on to demand, let them bring their witnesses to justify them and let them he let them hear them say it is true. God gathers his witnesses. God says, you are my witnesses and my servant who I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. God declares, I am God and henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can hinder it. Yet while God calls his witnesses, it appears that Israel did not respond to his subpoena. You did not call upon me, O Jacob but you have been weary of me, O Israel. This trial of God has called on himself, rendered judgment on Israel, who has sided with the nations of the world and is not among his witnesses. Therefore, I profaned the princes of the sanctuary. I delivered Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling, God says in Isaiah 43, 28. So too in John, God is put on trial in Jesus. He has called witnesses to testify in his behalf, John the Baptist. Uh, this is the testimony given by John from John 1.19. Jesus himself, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, Jesus says in John 8.14. Jesus' work are called as a witness, but I have testimony greater than John's. The work of the Father has given me to complete, John 5.36. The scriptures are a witness. It is they who testify on my behalf, Jesus says in 539. The Samaritan women, many, many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony, John 439. The crowd who bore witness to Lazarus' death. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of, out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify, John 1217. And finally, the God, the Father himself. And the Father who sent me testifies on my behalf, Jesus says in 8.18. As in Isaiah, in John's gospel, God has gathered his witnesses, but Israel was not among them. In Isaiah, Jacob was not a witness for God because it had not heard, it had not called on God. And Israel was not a witness because it grew weary of God. In John, Israel testifies against Jesus by the declaration of its chief priest, we have no king but Caesar and its cries of crucify him. While Jesus is on trial in the gospel, however, he's not judged, but passed on from Judas to the chief priest, to Pilate, to the crowd, to the cross. In a violent clash of humanity's order of truth, justice, and sacrifice with and against Jesus's order of truth, justice, and sacrifice, humankind is judged. 
An Easter God accepts Jesus' self-sacrifice as truth and the unfolding of justice, and thereby condemns Israel's and all of humanity's notions of sacrifice, justice, and truth. Yeah, I, th- I think that says it. This, I think, is the link to Paul. In other words, our very notion of truth is actually on trial. The, the, the cosmic notion of truth, the cosmic notion of justice, the very understanding of reality, in, in a sense, is on trial here. I think it's that radical. If we don't get the radical nature of it, I'm afraid we miss it. It is of cosmic proportion. It is, by, na- by its very nature, a, a challenge to a, the cosmic order as we would apprehend it. And the word cosmos in John, of course, he uses it to refer to God's good creation. But, of course, God came to save his creation. God so loved the world. But there's also the cosmos of darkness. There's this kind of imminent frame that I I think is broken open. Read rightly, we should all understand the, the high priest's statement, don't you know that one man must die? that the nation would be saved. That is just the basis of human logic. Of course, uh, again, a kind of scapegoat. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.